Today, I want to share with you a message that I've entitled, But Even If He Doesn't. I'm so amazed that we're living in this time that it's, it's so confusing, it's chaotic, it's almost upside down. Imagine with me a society that preaches freedom of speech until you express your belief and they decide to cancel you because they disagree. What about a culture that is against hate speech using hate speech? The cultural and societal climate we live in today is stressful and overwhelming to say the least. And that's not even including the ramifications of this whole pandemic that is of historic proportions all the unknowns and the stressors that it provides with it. This cancel culture is rising as a direct threat to our faith. Let me say that again. This cancel culture is rising as a direct threat to our faith. So the challenge is to be able to exert our rights as followers of Jesus, but also as citizens of a democracy in the midst of pure evil and hate. Jude, who was a brother of Jesus, he writes a letter with the intent of first sharing the gospel message, but realizes that he needs to focus on a bigger issue at hand, the defense of our faith. Now, you might be saying to yourself, our faith does not need defending. God is God all by himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ stands true whether people believe in it or not, but Jude takes out some time to write this letter, and his premise is we need to understand how to defend our faith. Now, I agree that our faith per se does not need defending. What it is, it's a posture, it's a position that you and I as followers of Jesus must take in response to the direct threat and the challenge that's being made and the demand of cancel culture to ask us the indirect question, where do you stand with your faith? How do you express your convictions and your core values in terms of your faith? And so if you look with me in the letter that Jude wrote, and I'll read some verses beginning with verse 3. He says, dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have warmed their way into churches your church is saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 8. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. Verse 16. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and flatter others to get what they want. 
verse 18. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Now, let's be clear. God does not need a group of avengers to fight for his cause to prove he is God. He's not waiting for a spiritual Captain America or a, a Grace Church Hulk to come down and save the faith, if you will. No. As we already said, God is God all by himself. But here's the reality. The defense of our faith covers two questions we must ask ourselves as followers of Jesus. One, what do I truly believe? And two, how do I prove it? So if you and I are followers of Jesus, we are his disciples, we have committed our lives to be like him according to the influence of the spirit that's in us, these are two very important questions that we must answer. What do I truly believe and how do I prove it? If you can answer these questions, then you can present a defense of your faith in Christ. To illustrate this a little bit further, I, I, I would ask you this. In the midst of this chaotic environment we are all experiencing, do you believe God is still able Almighty God sitting on his throne in power and in truth. In the midst of what we're seeing as unending and every time we think the curve is flying in one area, here comes a spike in another area. And every time we think the rioting has ceased for a bit, another uprise here, another uh, violent issue over here. If you believe that God in the midst of this hot mess, as I like to call it, is still God, do you believe that he is still able and that he is still sitting on his throne in power and in truth? Can he make all of this disappear? If your answers were yes to all of those questions, then my last question to you is, what if he doesn't do anything about it? You know, I, re I remember when I was younger in middle school, and I had a friend who was being bullied in school, and the friend would come to me and tell me his uh, grief. He was suffering from the hands of a bully, calling him names, and he would tell me, I don't know what to do. I, I, I told my teacher, my teacher doesn't believe me, and I suggested, you know, for him to speak to the principal, and he said, well, they're not going to believe me, and I said, well, what about your parents? And he says, I don't have any parents. I live in an adoptive home, and uh, although there are adults there that take care of me, but I don't consider them my parents. I don't really even know them, and I remember as I was hearing his voice, I almost wanted my father to jump in on his behalf so that he would feel that someone would stand behind him, defend him, and be there to believe in him. And I'm reminded of this story because there's times where we feel that there's injustice 
that there's uh, so much wrong happening around us. And we believe in a God that's able, that's powerful, that can uh, move mountains, that can open Red Seas, that can open the Jordan River, and the people of God can walk through it in dry land. Yet, it seems as if God is busy doing other things. And it begs the question, if we believe that he's able, why is nothing happening? Or the other question, what if he doesn't do what we feel he should be doing in the midst of this craziness that we're all experiencing? Well, I believe that as the Apostle Paul expressed in Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for the good of those that trust in him. I believe that even if with our eyes we don't see God doing what we feel he should be doing, which we know he's capable, more than capable of doing, I believe there's a lesson behind it. I believe that God is working everything for the good for all of us that believe and follow him. I believe God has a purpose and the purpose is greater than our mishaps, is greater than our misunderstanding, is greater than our pitfalls and our shortcomings. Even in our perspective as to who we believe God is, God is working something out. And to illustrate it even further, I want us to go to a great story in the Old Testament. And I love this story because it's a reminder of how God uses circumstances that seem grim and almost a death sentence to bring about his glory and to bring about a reminder that he is still God and he's seated on his throne. And it's in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. To give a little bit of context, uh, this is the story where uh, Daniel is one of the young men that was part of the captivity of which Israel experienced. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he was a pretty mighty and strong king. And one of the things that he did, he went into uh, Judah and he burned the city down. He took over the temple, he burned all the gold and melted it so that he can reproduce it the way he wanted to, and he just destroyed the city. But he took with him all of the young and able men that were physically fit, that were able to serve the kingdom. So he rejected the older he rejected those that had uh, disabilities and things that made them uh, incapable of working, but he kept the young men that were able to work as slaves in the kingdom of Babylon. So here they are in Babylon, and in chapter 3, it talks about a statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had built. It was nine feet tall and nine feet wide. And this statue was to be worshipped as a symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's greatness. And so everyone in Babylon had to worship this statue. It, it was an idol representing King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll call him King Nebi for short. And as the statue was erected, when the trumpets would sound and the, uh, the song would be sung that would indicate it's time to worship, everyone was expected to worship. But here are three specific young men that 
were leaders of the province of Babylon, one of the provinces there, and they refused to worship. Their names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were not by any means going to compromise their belief in their God, even though they were in a strange land and entered as slaves into this land. They were committed to their faith and their core values of who God was in their lives. And so we begin to read in verse 16, and this is what it says about them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Is it possible that God allows us to go through times like this that I would like to call fiery furnaces in life to get us to ask these difficult questions about our faith and ask ourselves, what is it that we truly believe? I believe these challenges are necessary and God's way of providing an opportunity for us to grow in our faith, define our faith in him, and allow his glory to manifest in our lives. I believe that God allows fiery furnaces in our lives for a reason, and the reason is for purpose, and purpose connects us back to God, and God reveals himself through our purpose so that people would believe in who he is. And here are three young men that refuse to bow down. They refuse to bow down to cancel culture. They refuse to bow down to, to the extremes. They refused to bow down to anything that threatened their commitment and faith to God. And I believe that's a position that God wants us to have in today's cancel culture. I believe that we are directly being challenged to speak truth, even if it comes with a cost. I believe now more than ever, with the different platforms that we have to say something that will reach thousands and millions at once, we have a challenge to see if we are going to actually stand for what we believe. See, it was much more difficult back then because these individuals had to face death. There was a furnace that was prepared for anyone that would not bow down to this idol in Babylon. And once these three young Hebrew men said, we're not gonna do this, that fiery furnace was prepped, the heat was seven times multiplied, and now, literally, the heat was on. And so I wanna bring about three powerful truths when we are in a fiery furnace. I believe these truths serve as the purpose of which we find ourselves in this furnace 
that we're dealing with today. And the first truth, we find it in verses 24 and 25 of Daniel chapter 3. The furnace, number one, provides revelation. It provides revelation. Verse 24 of chapter 3 says, But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in an amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty. We certainly did, they replied. Verse 25 says, Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. The fiery furnace that we deal with today, number one, brings about the provision of a revelation, something that has to come out. The word in Hebrew is yarad, meaning bring forth the unseen. Something that was not seen before, all of a sudden, is revealed because of the furnace we find ourselves in. And it's amazing that out of everyone in the crowd, they're all unbelievers. None of them followed the God of Israel. None of them worshiped the God of Israel. They worshiped Nebuchadnezzar. They worshiped his kingdom. They were there to serve and worship Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Yet in the midst of a furnace, these three young men refused to compromise their faith and their beliefs. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar, an unbeliever, now can see Jesus in the midst of the furnace. How many times have you found yourself praying for an unbeliever, praying for someone in your family, at work, in school, somewhere that you've come in contact with, someone that is not a follower of Jesus, praying for their salvation, praying for them to know Jesus? Well, a furnace brings about this revelation. You're going through the fire. You're going through tough times. You probably lost your job. You probably contact, contracted the virus, a family member. You lost someone to the virus. All of these different ramifications of now not knowing whether our, our kids will be safe or going back to school, whether we'll be safe going to the different places that we go to. Yet you're going through the furnace. You're praising God. You're honoring God. And you're telling this culture, I will not bow down to your idol. I will not bow down to your core values. I will not bow down to what you want to make out of this. I still believe that God is real. I still believe that God is on his throne. And even if he doesn't get us out of this situation, I will still stand and worship only him. That attitude reveals Jesus and it serves as a defense of your faith. The second thing that I believe will help us see what God wants us to see during fiery furnace times is that the furnace provides liberation. It brings revelation and it provides liberation. Again, verse 25 says, Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Wow. Liberation. The fire had the intention of burning away everything. Had the intention of bringing their lives to a crisp, where all you would see is dust. Yet in the midst of the fiery furnace, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of loss, of grief, of anger, frustration, in the midst of all of this, God's provision of liberating them, literally, he liberated them. You know why? Because anytime we go into a fiery furnace situation, we are bound by things that perhaps are impeding our walk with God. We are bound by things that sometimes we don't even realize they're an issue, they're unhealthy. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's a, a lack of discipline, whether it's making decisions on our own without consulting God, whether it's being in illicit relationships, whatever it is, it's unhealthy. And God allows the furnace, and we walk into this furnace bound by this situation. Oh, but God is so good that the only thing that burns in a fiery furnace is that which has us bound. See, they went in bound, but the Bible says that the only thing that burned off was the very thing that had them bound. They did not even smell like smoke. God allows the fiery furnace not to burn us, not to destroy us. He allows it so that he can reveal himself and he can also liberate us from the things that have us bound. And thirdly, I see another truth that we can take away from this fiery furnace circumstance we find ourselves as a whole. And it is that the furnace provides promotion. Promotion. Look at verse 30 from Daniel 3. It says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. It's interesting that their defile or their stance against the norm was what actually got them promoted. Usually, in human resources term, that's called being subordinate. <laughs> but yet, in the kingdom of God, when you stand for what you believe, and what you believe is truth, it equals promotion. Not only was Jesus revealed in the midst of the furnace, not only was this situation allowing for them to be released or liberated from what had them in bondage, but now they get a promotion. Now they get elevated to a higher place. And it's interesting because the, the Hebrew word for promotion is, is, is I'm, I'm going to say it and, and you're going to probably react, but bear with me and I'll spell it out. It is P-U-W-Q, puke, <laughs> which means process. 
And I find that so interesting because even as we say it in the English language, it sounds disgusting, <laughs> unappealing. It doesn't it invite us into an experience. It's on the contrary. It's something that you don't want anything to deal with. But if you don't embrace it, there's no promotion. Puke. It's the very word in Hebrew, meaning to be promoted, to be elevated from one place to another. And God allows the fiery furnace so that it would puke us out, if you will, to a higher level because God knows what we need the most. And even in hard and difficult and challenging times, he wants to provide that to us. I'll leave you with this story. It's from a church leader that was experiencing a change in the way that they were discipling the church. And they began small groups and the topic for the small group for that season was process. And the verse that they were using was in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, where it says that he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And so it's this concept of a silversmith. The silversmith is the person that takes the silver from what it was to what it's supposed to be, silver. And this leader never heard of a silversmith and began to look up information and actually found a local silversmith in town. And so he decided to go visit the silversmith and it was about 10 minutes to close. He went in, the silversmith was actually in the store wrapping up and this leader asks him, May I ask you some questions? The silversmith said, sure. And he walks over to the sign, turns it to say closed, closes the door, and it's a one-on-one -on -one between him and the silversmith. And the silversmith goes, he grabs a piece of black charred metal and puts it on top of the table. And the leader begins to take out a notepad and write notes and he says, well, what are you going to do now? He says, well, I'm going to prepare it. And in the corner, there was one of those ovens where it had a see-through window in the front so you could see the flames, you could see that it was on, you could see that it was hot. And he grabs the big chunk of metal, he goes towards the furnace and he throws it in there, he closes the door, and you can begin to hear the crackle and see Everything jumping off of this piece of metal. It was dark. It was dirty. It almost looked worthless. And as that is going on, the leader is writing down what he feels God is telling him about the experience. And they're having conversation. The silversmith interrupts him and says, one minute he goes to the oven. He opens it. He, he has all the protective gear. He brings out the piece of metal that is hot, puts it on top of the table, and he says, I just have to let it cool off a little bit. The leader asks him, well, how do you know how long to have this piece of metal in the furnace? And the leader said, that's very important. Uh, not too long because the whole project will be, uh, you know, dropped. It will be a mess, but it has to be long enough because the impurities have to come out.
And so he grabs the piece of metal again. He throws it into the furnace for more and more heat. Then finally, as they're wrapping up, the silversmith walks over to the furnace, brings out the piece of metal, puts it on the table, and begins to work on it and work on it and begins to polish it and to refine it until it begins to look like that grayish look that the silver has. And at this point, the leader is in tears because God is speaking to him and telling him how he has to go through this process. And then he says to the silversmith, can I ask you one last question? And the silversmith is rubbing and polishing the silver and says, sure, anything, anything, it's okay. You can ask me anything. And the leader says, how do you know when you're done? And the silversmith grins and looks at him and he says, that's a great question. He says, I know I am done when I can see my own reflection in the silver. You see, God is in the process with us. He's in the furnace with us. He's liberating us from things that we don't need in the midst of the fiery furnace. He's purifying us. He's conforming us to his own image. The Bible says that he's working in us until we reach the perfection of Jesus Christ. And so he wants us to look like his son. And so he refines us. He polishes us. And he allows all these things to come out. Cancel culture. Prove your faith. Are you really a follower of Jesus? Pandemic. Do you trust the government? All these things. And God is saying, I'm doing something in you. I'm purifying and it's coming out and it's coming out. And you're starting to look like my son, Jesus. And so the question remains, if God does not do it the way you and I want him to or think he should, he should do, will we still worship, bow to him, and allow him to purify our lives? God bless you.